Everyone who goes on the road eventually stops for a rest, but my road never ends and I never get to stop. I endure a perpetual journey which the years cannot stop, nations and kings cannot prevent my journey. The one who understands this road, plan your journey with care. I am biting, but I do not bite anyone. And many want to bite the biter. Do not fear. I do not have teeth. To the one who has the experience to understand, let her bite without fear. I have little courage, but great resources. I do not seek wealth, but I give it to others. Wandering around, I eat humble foods, and I am often forced to give up my wealth. People keep my body close to them. I have no money, but even kings value me. To the one who can parse a riddle, let that one grow warm in her wisdom. Well, we are in a series on the Gospel of Luke, and after a week off, and I'm very grateful for Raul Pacheco filling in for me last week, we are back for a second time in Luke chapter 8 in Jesus' parable of the sower. And so we're going to be spending some time with that today, even as we're going to be walking through Psalm 40 uh, as well. And so if you, if you want to get both passages together, that, that would actually be uh, a pretty good idea. So two weeks ago, we discussed this parable's meaning. And this week, we're discussing why Jesus taught in parables in the first place, because he does tell us why here in this passage. So we're going to be in First Luke chapter 8, beginning with verse 4. And when a great crowd was gathering and people from town after town came to him, he said in a parable, a sower went out to sow his seed. And as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it. And some fell on the rock, and as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. And some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. As he said these things, he called out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when his disciples asked him what this parable meant, he said, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others... They are in parables, so that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to Christ for it. Let's go again in prayer to him. Heavenly Father, as I was thinking through uh, the, the offering, some of us here have done this very ritual hundreds of times, if not thousands of times, of coming to worship singing, uh, confessing, praying, and listening to your word and meditating on it. And I pray that now in this, this time that this ritual would be good and useful, that you would be at work among us, that we too might have eyes to see and ears to hear and feet that follow you, that this would not just be some mere ritual that we are going through the actions then indeed you would be at work within us. Though we cannot see it, though we probably can't feel it either, we trust you are at work. We pray all of this in your son's name. Amen. Well, riddles like the three I mentioned earlier and parables like the parable of the sower 
are, are similar in that they often involve word plays or, or images or stories that are meant to convey a meaning beyond the simple surface reading of the words. So my first riddle, uh, everyone who goes on the road eventually stops for rest, but my road never ends and I never get to stop. I endure a perpetual journey which the years cannot stop. Nations and kings cannot prevent my journey. We figured it out. That's a riddle describing the sun. The sun. The second riddle, I am biting, but I do not bite anyone, and many want to bite the biter. Don't be scared. I do not have any teeth. That's an onion, right? The third one, I have little courage but great resources. I do not seek wealth, but I give it to others. Wandering around, I eat humble foods, and I'm often forced to give up my wealth. People keep my body close to them. I have no money, but even kings value me. That's a sheep. Right? So as we think through these, by the way, I found these, thank you, Google, and they all come from the Middle Ages, almost all of them, that were just fun riddles that people played to each other. And as you think about them, riddles are, are puzzles, right, to be figured out somewhat like, I guess, a Rubik's Cube, and they're intended to be fun or, or challenging in some way. And the parables of Jesus are clearly different, though they, they can be very puzzling or cryptic, even as the stakes are so much higher than trying to figure out that I was talking about an onion. Right? So if you don't understand a single one of my riddles, and as my hope was that as I was telling them, you're trying to, to figure it out, like, what is it? I could be that you're thinking through this. Well, if you don't figure it out and you don't get the answer, so what? Right? It, it doesn't make you less of a person. You can walk out the door not caring. Right? If you don't understand Jesus' parables, well, there are consequences to that. When Jesus spoke in parables, he was illustrating, sometimes overtly, sometimes very subtly, if not purposefully, cryptically, issues related to his ministry or the coming of the kingdom of God or even his own life. So let's read through the parable of the sower one more time. Here's what he says. A sower, or we would think of a farmer, goes out to sow his seed. So he's, he's casting it out. Some of that seed falls on a well-worn path where it gets trampled underfoot and the birds of the air devoured it. Some of the seed fell on the rock and as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. Some fell among thorns and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. And some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. So Jesus tells this to the crowds with no explanation, right? No explanation. And then he says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear, which is a clear allusion to the prophet Isaiah, among other things. And then he just keeps on going. So it would be like, this is why I did this at the beginning. I say a riddle and say, he who has ears to understand it, great. Let us pray. Right? What, what on earth? What, 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 that, what kind of sermon is that? What are we, what are we tithing for if that's, if that's what you're going to give us? And as... as you know, you listen to what Jesus says here. If you treat it like a riddle or like a puzzle to be figured out, it's possible to come up with thousands, right, of different interpretations of what it could mean. And that's why Jesus' disciples straight up asked him, what are you talking about? What is the meaning of your parable? And as we discussed two weeks ago, 
Jesus was explaining four different responses to his word. He had been preaching for a while now, and not everyone is responding. In fact, many people are not responding. So three responses to his preaching result in no fruit. Though they look like different kinds of responses, they're no fruit, no crop, no disciples. And only one response was fruitful, and that response produced a crop of, as Jesus says, or it would produce a crop of ridiculous, if not miraculous, proportions. So the parable of the sower is one of Jesus' more subtle, if not purposely cryptic parables intended to keep people from understanding the truth. Think about that. It was intended to keep people from understanding the truth. Though once you understand the parable, it's very clear. It's very clear and explains not just how people were responding to Jesus in the moment, but how, as we talked about two weeks ago, people still respond to him. But consider one of his more overt Parables like the, the parable of the wicked tenants of Matthew 21, which Jesus told to the chief priests and elders in the temple uh, right after his triumphal entry. So this was a public confrontation. And keep in mind, the priests and elders had already rejected Jesus and had made a plan to kill him. And Jesus knows this. So Jesus says, there was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and then went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. The tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, the master sent other servants, more than the first. And again, the tenants did the same. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Now, at that point, Jesus then asked the chief priests and elders. Remember, this is the public confrontation in the temple, the center point of Israel. He says, he asked them, therefore, when the the owner of the vineyard comes... What will he do to his tenants? So he's asking the chief priest this. So like the prophet Nathan confronting David over Bathsheba and Uriah, Jesus was asking these men to render a judgment about the characters in his parable. And they respond by saying, this is very much like David, the master should, be, should put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their season. So not, they shouldn't just like kill him, a miserable death, right? This is their judgment on on Jesus' story. And like David, they've indicted themselves without realizing it, though they do eventually realize that Jesus was talking about them. Now, Jesus, of course, is the key to understanding the parable, and he says as much to the chief priests and, and the elders. The master of the house is Yahweh. The house is the world. The vineyard, the wine press, and the tower are, are really Israel and Jerusalem and, and the temple. And the tenants are the so-called shepherds of Israel, that is, the chief priests and the elders. And it's a parable about the history of God speaking to Israel through his prophets who were rejected, sometimes brutally so. Just go read Hebrews 11. 
leading up to this very moment with this confrontation in the temple. Now, at this crucial moment in Israel's history, Yahweh has sent his son to Israel. And if the tenants, the leaders of Israel, reject him and kill him, which was their plan, basically, that we'll take the kingdom for ourselves, they will surely die and be replaced. So while the imagery of, of the world as God's house and Israel as God's vineyard was very familiar uh, to Israel's leadership, and that is, that is all over the Old Testament, what ultimately condemns them is their refusal to accept Jesus as the Son of God, or as Jesus puts it in his answer to them, really explaining the meaning of his parable to them using Psalm 118 that we use as our profession of faith, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. And then he pairs that with another allusion to Isaiah, with Isaiah 8, verses 14 through 15, which says, And he, that is God himself, will become a sanctuary. So that's temple language. God will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel that is, northern and southern kingdoms alike, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, where they are at this moment, and many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. So Jesus was telling the leadership of Israel that not only is he God's son, which is something he's been saying all along, he's the very God who Isaiah says will either be your sanctuary or the one who judges you unto death. So even though the leadership of Israel was steeped in Scripture, and that's often missed on us, that they really knew the Scriptures, still they rejected Jesus and indicted themselves by their own words. Though they had eyes and ears, they could not see and hear what was right in front of them and in turn did not listen to God's Son. Now, the notion of listening to God, really to God's word and doing it as markers of what it is to be a fully alive human, well, that, that goes all the way back to Adam in the garden, and it travels all the way forward to us in this moment. So like we've discussed many times before, God's people are like the good tree of Psalm 1. I've used that a lot throughout this series. That is rooted in God's word, listens to his voice, and does what he says, and in turn makes good judgments by it. So we hear and see by God and live in communion with him. That's what it is to be a fully alive human. That's exactly how Jesus describes the good soil in chapter 8, verse 15 of our passage today, right? As for that in the good soil, the, the word that hits the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. And one place to think through what it means to listen to God in the way that I think Jesus is meaning it here is actually with David in that Psalm 40 passage. So if you have Psalm 40, flip over there, and we're going to walk through at least the first six verses with a little bit of depth. So beginning with verse 1, this is what David says. I waited patiently for the Lord. That's that Luke 8 bears patiently with God. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me. That is, he leaned in, and he heard my cry. 
He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog. That is, he brought me out of death and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Now, if you just look at the verbiage there, all of this is God. God is doing every last one of these things for David, including putting the praise in David's mouth. Then David says, verse 4, Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust. That is, this is the response to what God has done. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go after a lie. And again, that's Psalm 1 language too. That's the right response to God's word. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds. So he's From Egypt onward, he continues to multiply his wondrous deeds and your thoughts towards us. And none can compare with with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. So that's what's actually coming next week with what Jesus says after the parable of the sower. That those who have an ear towards God can't help but speak about him. Now... What comes next is why I am uh, walking through Psalm 40, because verse 6 is key, I think, to understanding Jesus. He says, In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Okay, so when David says, You have given me an open ear, it's literally, Ears you have dug for me which is a strange statement. That's why the English makes it much more palatable to us. But he's referencing the slave laws of Exodus 21. That's what David is doing, where if a slave, and these were really more like indentured servants who served a house or a family for seven years, at the end of his his seven-year time uh, with a family, if a man decided he wanted to permanently stay with his master, he could. And here's what the law says. This is Exodus 21, beginning of verse 5. But if the slave plainly says, so he's not coerced, this is what he wants. I love my master, my wife, and my children, who were all given to him within his master's house. I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost. And just as an aside in Scripture, often new beginnings happen at doors or doorposts, or judgments happen at doors or doorposts. And his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever. So the idea here is that the master circumcises the slave's ear. That is, ears you have dug for me. This is an ear-piercing that symbolizes a new relationship to where the slave will only have ears for, he will only listen to his master's voice. That's what's in view in that law. This, David says, is what God has done for him. And in turn, it has made him a new and different man. Go back to Psalm 40. Let's pick it up with verse 7. He says, Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book, it is written of me. And whenever you see that language, that's always census language. So David now belongs to his master's house forever. He's counted as belonging to it, like with the census. And by the way, that's what we want too. I delight to do your will, 
Oh my God, your law is within my heart. And again, that's the same idea of a slave who loves his master and wants to stay with him even as it anticipates the new covenant in which God promises, that's Jeremiah 31, in which to write his law in his people's heart through the Spirit. So instead of a circumcision of the ear where we listen, it's a circumcision of the heart. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips. As you know, O Lord, I I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness. He's not hiding any of this. He can't help like Isaiah. But speak now. Now that his ear is open and his heart is open, he must speak now. So as a man whose ear has been circumcised that now is able to hear his master's voice, his lips are a reflection of his heart set on God. And he speaks of the goodness of God. And we're, we're going to talk directly again about that next week. And then it finishes out. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy. So if David will not restrain his lips in praise, God first and continues to not restrain his mercy from David and his people. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. So the idea is that God must change David. He must circumcise David's ear. He must bore a hole in it, a a large gauge ear piercing so that David can hear the voice of his God and delight in his law and in turn be a whole new man. What's fascinating is that this is exactly what God does for Saul. King Saul, the first king of Israel, after Samuel anoints him as king in 1 Samuel 10. So Samuel tells Saul that the spirit of the Lord will rush upon him He will prophesy, that is, he will speak the words of the Lord just as David is doing here, because David was a kind of prophet, and will be turned into literally another man. And before these things actually happen, as Samuel turns to walk, excuse me, as Saul turns to walk away from Samuel, the text says, God in that moment gave him another heart. That's what's in view with David in Psalm. That's why after Bathsheba and Uriah, David begs God. He begs him in Psalm 51 to redeem him and wash him and to not remove the Holy Spirit from him. But there's another important aspect here in 40 verse 6 that surrounds having an open ear. Listen again to how David frames the ear in all of this. In sacrifice and offering, you have not delighted. But you have given me an open ear. He repeats the same thought then. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. So anytime a text repeats itself like that in slightly different language, but it repeats the idea, you got to pay attention to it. That's how Hebrew works. So David surrounds the idea of an open ear to God with the idea that God is not after sacrifices or burnt offerings. That's not what pleases him. No, he's after a heart set on him, or a contrite heart, as David talks about it. And David makes that very point in Psalm 51 when he says, you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. So this gets picked up in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 6, which directly quotes again, Psalm 40, verse 6, 
In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. And the point in Hebrews 10, and really this is the whole of the book of Hebrews, is that even though God instituted the, the Levitical sacrificial system, it's not as though it brought him any pleasure. So he's not jazzed up over the burned fat of an animal, no matter how good it smells cooking on the grill. Which, by the way, every time you see an animal slaughtered at the temple or the tabernacle, they ate it. So it was like a perpetual barbecue happening there. What Hebrews hammers home is that the sacrificial system was never an end to itself. And it existed as a means for dealing with the people's sin, not for giving God, in any sense, pleasure. So God never, for example, you know, saw a bull being led up to the altar and thought, oh, baby, finally. Now that's a bull I could get behind. That's what I have always wanted. Not at all. No, the sacrificial system always pointed forward to the Christ the true Passover lamb who would take away the sins of the world once and for all and in turn make his people fully alive humans and dwelled by the Spirit, the law written in their hearts with ears that listen to his word and eyes that make right judgments in everyday living in light of him and delighting in his word and walking in his way. So what God wants is not a bull. It's communion. It's communion with his image bearers who delight in him because God delights in his image bearers and made them for communion with him. That's why humans exist. That's the purpose of our lives. It's not your job. It's not to make money. It's communion with God. It's like when people mistakenly think, and this happens all the time, it's hap- I guarantee you it's happening in Butler County this morning. I'll give God what he wants by showing up to church or by giving him some money or doing some good deeds or, or whatever. And not only does God not need your money, he does not need your money or doing some good deeds or whatever. He certainly doesn't need you to show up. He doesn't. While we are called to worship and to give our time and our money and to love our neighbors, to think that our money is what God actually wants is a fundamental misunderstanding of our relationship to him. It's not what he's after. He's after you, not your money. My 50th birthday was almost a month ago, and I was given a wonderful surprise party that actually really did take me by surprise. I'd like to pride myself on thinking I can usually catch these things. I did not, and it completely took me uh, unawares. And, and what mattered to me uh, was not so much the cost of, of the party, though it was very, very nice. It was the thoughtfulness, the thoughtfulness that showed that people genuinely care about me and love me. I mean, it, honestly, it really took me back. I was having a conversation with Nathan Skipper. He said, you really don't have anything to say, do you? I'm like, no, I really, I, I don't know what to do at this moment. It was great. And it's like, you know, when my sons would give me gifts when they were much, much younger, you know, I didn't value the gift based on the dollar amount, and I didn't judge their cards by the amount of skill that went into crafting it. It's the heart. It's the heart that stood behind the gift. So the question is, when is a gift 
not a gift. It all depends on the heart that gave the gift. See, God is not impressed. He is just not impressed when you show up to church as if he was thinking, oh, finally someone to worship me. I've been so lonely. I'm so lucky. I'm flattered that you came. No, it's the heart that leads someone to come that says, I want to commune with the one who made me. Because he's not only glorious, he has given me his steadfast loving kindness and he'll never let it go. And that's really good news that God, God doesn't want your money or superficial displays of morality. How tired is that? No, he wants you. He wants you. So those who have ears to hear and eyes to see are people who have hearts set on God. And as David makes clear, it is the gift of God that makes us into another person that can actually do this. But those who do not have ears to hear or eyes to see are the sorts of people that think God delights in sacrifices and burnt offerings or think they can appease him with their tithes or the occasional presence for worship. So in other words, they, they think God is cheap and they treat him as such. And one of the clearest places this is illustrated is with Isaiah's call to be a prophet in Isaiah 6. And after he's been redeemed, if you remember that, that scene in Isaiah 6, after he's been redeemed in the throne room of God, God calls out, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And as a newly redeemed man, like David, who has had his ear dug out, Isaiah says, here I am, send me. So he, he can't help but want to do what God desires. He wants to serve his God. He wants to speak for him. Here's what God commands Isaiah to preach to his people, though. Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their ears and hear with their, uh, excuse me, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. So this is the calling to preach the judgment of God to a people who have refused to listen to God. And if you know the history of Israel, it was a long refusal. Even as they continued to engage, this is what's missed a lot of times by, by Christians reading this, they continued to engage in a kind of lip service worship, offering sacrifices and burnt offerings. So it's like a man who ceased loving his wife years ago, but continues to give flowers at Valentine's Day. Or it's, it's Mother's Day. Oh, it's Mother's Day. Here we go again. I need to do this, though. It's that kind of man. So even as God speaks to them through his prophet, which is telling, God continues to speak through them. He does not want them to turn and be healed. That's the judgment. And Isaiah rightly asks, oh, man, how long? As in, how long do I have to preach this word? And God says, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without a people and the land is a desolate waste and the Lord removes people far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, that is like there's a tithe still there, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. That is the history from Isaiah all the way through Daniel, Ezra, Nehemiah. That's the history that happens. And if you read through Isaiah 42, for example, it contains both the promise of the coming Messiah, and it's incredible. It's beautiful. God always keeps his promises, even as it is an indictment of God's people for being deaf 
and blind to his word. So those who do not have eyes to see or ears to hear, at least in the context of the Old Testament prophets, are the Jewish people who refuse to listen to God's word through prophets like Isaiah, even as this is, this is terrifying. They still engage in some semblance of worship of their God. So by the time you get to Jesus, and again, Jesus' parable of the wicked tenants makes this clear, the difference between those here, those who hear and those who do not hear is squarely on their response to God's Son. So this is not a distinction between those who worship and those who do not, for example. Presumably everyone who heard Jesus' parable of the sower engaged in some form of worship of the God of Israel. Now, the distinction, as Peter Lightheart points out, is between hearing and doing, it's kind of Psalm 1 language, as opposed to offering sacrifices. So Jesus' followers, like what David says in Psalm 40 and 51, offer the sacrifice of the ear rather than bulls and goats. So instead of practicing circumcision or requiring bloody offerings, as Paul writes against in Galatians, against the Judaizers' insistence on circumcision, it's rather circumcise the ear and thus the heart instead of circumcise the flesh. So for good reason, at the dedication of the temple, Solomon prayed that it would be a house of prayer, a prayer where, a place where God's people could commune with God. And it's telling. It's so telling to me that even though Solomon, listen to these numbers. I, don't ha- I tried to come up with a dollar amount. I can't. He offered 22,000 oxen and 120,000 sheep as peace offerings at that dedication, which was an indication of his heart. It'd be like, I don't know, he showed up with 10.5 million. Here you go. But in his prayer, he never mentions sacrifice at all, ever. No, he prays that this house will be a house of communion and prayer with God, which is exactly how Jesus describes it. My father's house is a house of prayer. Like his father David, Solomon desired that God would incline his ear to his people. He would listen. He would come near and that his people would have ears dug out by God. So sacrifice was not the point of the temple, though, of course, sacrifices were a critical part of it. The forgiveness and atonement for sin is provided for, and, and, and again, God does this himself, is provided so that people in turn will be enabled now to pray and to commune with God. So the dividing line between those who have ears to hear and those who do not is not necessarily a line running between pagans and Christians, though that certainly is true. But rather, it's the line that runs between those who listen to Jesus and those who do not. And the dividing line often runs right through the middle of good churches who meet in Jesus' name. But in case you're worried or, or question whether you have ears to hear, which is a natural, like, well, this is... Is he talking about me here? Notice who, who asked Jesus what the meaning of the parable is. It's the, his disciples. Right? They hear the parable just like everyone else, but they're not content to let it go. They say, hey, what does that mean? So in verse 10, in response to their question, Jesus says, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others they are in parables 
so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. So Jesus is the fulfillment of Isaiah, and he's doing both. He's giving eyes, and he's taking it away at the same time. And the disciples are people who have had their ears circumcised, and so they turn to Jesus himself for the meaning of his word. The scribes and Pharisees do not. That's the difference. So if you're concerned over whether or not you listen to Jesus, whether you're one who has ears to hear, there are at least two things you can do today, if not right now, to work through this. First, as an exercise of self-reflection or self-evaluation, ask yourself, do I actually listen to God through his son and his word? Do I actually do that? Do I in any way delight in him? And I realize people are across the board in what they're experiencing right now. But is there any sense, even a little bit, that you delight in him? Like David, do I have a heart that is sensitive to him? Or have I reduced the Christian life to occasionally offering sacrifices and burnt offerings in the form of kind of the obligatory showing up to worship a couple of times a month or giving money uh, in the plate on occasion or every once in a while volunteering for something or, or just you know going through the motions of... I'm going to bow my head when people pray for whatever thing I'm attending, taking off the hat and all that business. By the way, none of the things I mentioned are bad. It's the heart behind why you're doing it that's in question. Second, do you seek after God in prayer? Remember, what's the purpose of the temple? That it may be a house of prayer. Do you feel motivated, if not compelled, to give him thanks for what he has given you? Do you feel his absence or distance when you neglect prayer? Do you pray at all? Prayer may be one of the best check engine lights that we have in order to gauge where we are with Christ in our walk with him. So for those who have ears to hear, let them hear. Let us pray. Father, I pray through your Son that you would indeed give us all here eyes to see and ears to hear and feet to follow your Son. I pray this in his name through the Holy Spirit. Amen.